0: Well, you know, I've been uh, director of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute for about three and a half years. Has it
1: really been that long
0: already? Yeah, I arrived in uh, January of 2018. Uh Uh, Time has passed quickly, and of course, life has changed, and we've had different iterations of what normal is, Um, (laughs) but uh, it's—and I guess I came to the job— not certain what it was gonna be. I was a reporter for my entire career. For uh-huh. 25 plus years, um, I was a congressional reporter in DC. This opportunity came up, and so you know, I moved to, the, uh, moved to Carbondale, took the, the helm of the institute, and, and actually one of the kind of critical moments as I think back, a couple months into my tenure, I was in Peoria, which is where I'm from, and mm-hmm. I was meeting a couple people who, uh, actually the director of the Dirksen Center, in, um, in Pekin, Illinois, and, in the, and the director of a leadership center in Peoria at Bradley University. And I have talked to him, I said, so like, what is the secret of running a public policy institute, particularly one affiliated with the university? <laughs> uh-huh. And they, one, one thing they said is to avoid mission drift. Mm-hmm. And I pressed him a little bit and they said, you know, for, for a, a policy institute affiliated with the university, there is a real uh, danger that... Um, Lots of things come on the university's horizon. They have no idea what to do with it. So they say, let's give it to the Policy Institute. Mm-hmm. And before too long, you just become this almost blob of unconnected projects. Mm-hmm. And you can run off in a million different directions and get confused and not really have much influence in any realm. So the, the thing that these gentlemen told me, and I think has really t- proved true for me, is when you have a relatively small staff um, You need to have a basic agenda which you understand, which Mm -hmm. you focus on. It allows you to organize your day, your week, your month. It gives you a reason. I mean, I I am open to all ideas, but this gives me a a kind of a a filtering context Mm -hmm. to decide what things that people bring to me are worth pursuing or that I have time to pursue.
1: Yeah. I mean, time to pursue – It's almost like you polished that one off and threw it right in for the 78th iteration of the WTF Carbondale podcast, where we talk to interesting people about their interesting lives. And sorry, 79th, read the screen again correctly, Nathan, the WTF Carbondale podcast, where we interview interesting people about their interesting lives and tie it all back to this little old place we call home, Carbondale, Illinois. And a person who now is calling Carbondale home, John Shaw, director of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute. Thanks for the time, man. Sorry, that Perfect. was a really sloppy break in, but I'm gonna run with it. <laughs> no worries. Um, but no, so like like just keeping keeping on track, having having that mission, but also finding the interesting little ways to just kind of like. Find the additional projects and what's acceptable and what's not, kind of along the way too.
0: Yeah, and I mean, actually, you know, as, as you might expect, I mean, the, the pandemic provides a classic example yeah. because we, uh, you know, we had a full schedule plan for the spring of 2020. COVID came. We knew we had to, you know, end in-person events for the foreseeable future. Then we try to figure out, okay, so what do we do? You know, how do we keep alive? Mm-hmm. And we, uh, none of us on the staff really was that familiar with Zoom, but we decided, you know, let's, let's see how this technology might work. And we decided to create a series called Understanding Our New World in which we would talk to interesting people about just yeah. this, this world that was unfolding in front of us. And our first uh, uh, guest was David Kennedy, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian from Stanford. Mm-hmm. And he was wonderfully interesting. We had a technological <laughs> glitch, which we had to you know, rescue ourselves from. Uh-huh. And then the next person we had was someone that I had known from a past, um, a diplomat in Sweden from mm-hmm. Stockholm, who, was, who had been once the, the number two person at the UN. He had wow. been Sweden's foreign minister, ambassador mm-hmm. to the U.S., So, we had a couple really, then we had the president of Knox College. And so, we had, I think the one thing we found is we had a couple really good guests early on. And that allowed us to build momentum and to start Mm -hmm. approaching other people and say, you know, kind of a a sort of a a kind of persuasion by example and say, Mm you know, here are some people who've gone before. So, and just in the first couple months of the program, we had a gentleman by the name of Bill Burns, who was then the president of the Carnegie Institute of International Peace, who's now the director of the CIA. Holy crap! We had Pete Buttigieg, <laughs> who was then a professor yeah. at Notre Dame, who's yeah. now Secretary of Transportation. Yeah. We had one of our, relatively early in the program, we had a somewhat of a backbencher by the name of Chris Welch, who's uh-huh. now the speaker of the Illinois yeah. House. Yep. Um, and then we've just kind of gone to town, and we had Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, who's one of the most Respected leaders in the world. We had mm-hmm. Leon Panetta. So this is an example where I, I can't say that we had mapped out the Zoom world. Yeah. But you know we knew we had to do something. We knew we had to pivot, and then we kind of went with it, and and it has been a success, and it's really brought a lot of interesting new voices to the institute. Uh, a number of our our friends and and donors. Have sent me notes saying, you know, this this series helped them get <laughs> yeah. through the pandemic because yeah. it's allowed them to, uh, to to see and meet interesting people.
1: Well, and it's it's so cool the the way that you describe this right is is very much a, a a model that works at scale because this project that we're in the midst of talking through now I think operates very much the same way right that that thanks to the credibility of some of the early folks that. Uh, were on this podcast. We'll touch on Ali at some point, I'm sure. I just, I love when she told me that story. I was just like, wow. Just, I wanted there to be usefulness in this media yeah. and, there, and there really was. But, um, you know, that when you have some credible folks on up front that it's amazing how many more doors open along the way. But I'm sure you already had some doors that kind of existed that you could kind of walk through and some outreach that you were already able to execute just by virtue of the time that you spent reporting. You said 25 years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no,
0: so I had some contacts that I could draw on, and, um, and I, so, yeah, that was really helpful. But then also, as I say, once you've built up kind of a, a base of success, mm-hmm. it allows you to reach out to people and to have folks, you know, take a look at you that might not otherwise. I mean, for example, we had a great show with um, the president of the Brookings, yeah. uh, General John yeah. Allen, who's uh-huh. a four-star general. And I mean, I think what happened is you know initially they said, "Well okay, we'll think about it, and then we sent them our roster of speakers, mm-hmm. and they got back to us pretty quickly and said, "We'll be glad to do it so <laughs> so it's one of those things that I think people like to be um, you know are willing to invest time in yeah. a successful enterprise. I mean the other thing too is I, you know I, I take these interviews really seriously, and I was mm-hmm. a reporter for many years but and the one thing I've learned is that you know even sometimes when you're interviewing people and they're You know, they're not sure really why they're doing it. They're not sure how much energy to commit. Uh I have found that if you can signal early in the interview that you've really done your homework Mm -hmm. and that you can ask a question or two that isn't obvious, Mm -hmm. maybe that draws on something obscure they've written or Mm -hmm. something. um, And I'll give you a a classic example. We had an interview with uh, Pete Buttigieg. Mm And he has this—he's written this wonderful me- memoir, and he has this delightful chapter about his ill-fated attempt to be the treasurer of Indiana. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it's this really, really funny, um, ironic, self-deprecating chapter on running for treasure. Mm-hmm. And so, and then he, I mean, he, and he started out this chapter by saying, "Okay, I admit it. You know, I, I did not grow up in Indiana dreaming of one day becoming treasurer of the state. <laughs> you know, there were some circumstances. So, uh-huh. but in any case, early in that interview, I, I started asking about that, and I, I could tell him thinking that this was not expe- where the, he expected it yeah. to go. Yeah. and the fact that I, they had read this his book carefully and I had a couple funny quotes from that, mm-hmm. I mean, I felt the dynamic shift in which he was like, okay, this guy has, has shown up and has done his work yeah. and, and I'm willing to put you know some energy into this interview. Um, so that's that, I mean that's one of the things that I that's been reinforced in this project.
1: I, I, it's, in it's, I just, I'm really taken aback by this, John, because this isn't where I expected to jump off into the waters on and feel like just a, a particular level of camaraderie around that concept mm-hmm. because of what, what you've been doing and, and what we're doing here now, just because I, it's cool to have your work validated a little bit by listening to somebody talk about something at a grander scale that I can't even comprehend at this moment right now, just with you know local people in place. But again, it's the same. It's the same execution. It's the same functionality. Bring something to the table that's not just the same, you know, uh, milk toast, whatever for folks like give them a reason to want to be there and to talk to you. Yeah. I, and
0: actually I learned this when I was a reporter in DC. I had an interview with this guy who was um, who's head of a, a big not NGO. Uh-huh. And uh, I, so and he his name is Gareth Evans. He was uh, had been Australia's foreign minister. And I went into this interview and I could t- as, as soon as uh, it began, I could tell that he his his head was, "Why am I doing this? What's going on?" <laughs> I mean, and he had a, you know, this ridiculously packed schedule and uh-huh. someone had, someone had put this into his schedule. And I could see him just sort of thinking, "Why am I you know doing this?" And I had remembered in something I had read that he had he had talked about two or the three of his his all time favorite books, mm-hmm. and they were sort of obscure books. Um, and there was some little opening where I was able to say, but I remember you said that like this book that uh, William Shawcross wrote on <laughs> Henry Kissinger was your all time favorite book. And I could see the whole interview turn <laughs> on that moment. It was this sort of sense like, how does he know that yeah. you know and, and and i think that i think really at whatever level you engage people when you've done the homework and know about their history mm-hmm. and their background they feel like you have invested in the interview that yeah. you've taken time to learn who they are and people and i'm sure you found this too they like to talk about themselves yeah. but you know they, they they but but the thing that kind of triggers these interviews i think is a sense that the person who's asking the question really wants to know, is really curious, yeah. has taken the time to research your background, and can ask thoughtful and interesting questions.
1: Yeah, well, and I'm, you know, I, I I will I will say that I'm not phenomenal in the research aspect on it, but there's a there's a different, or I guess I should say the point of entry for me on that research, I guess is a better way to frame it, is the lived in aspect of interviewing people in place versus kind of where you're at on, you can, because of the profile of the folks that you engage with, right? That there is something out there for you to go grab and and consume about them and then turn that into that interesting interaction. Because I would imagine that a lot of these folks put out so much in the public eye that, whatever they put out, five, 10, 15, heck, you know, years ago, let alone two years ago, right, may just be a fleeting memory. And then when you jog that for them, they go, oh, wow, whoa, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, even in a, a recent example, we had a
0: wonderful mayor uh, interview with Mayor Stevens, Will yeah. Stevens. And, and the thing is, you know, and I had read about him a lot and, and, and was familiar with his background and all. But I spent the time, I, I was on, on the, uh, the, the, the Murfreesboro's, um website and I saw that they had this strategic plan that they Mm -hmm. had published a couple years earlier and it was like 90 pages or so. And I printed it out and I read it pretty carefully. I, not every word, but most of it. And so, and, and and there was just, I mean, how they did it, how they conducted the survey, the comments. I mean, that gave me an entry into some conversations about him, mm-hmm. how he plans, how he works as mayor, the community. So, so I, I think it is just finding, you know, play, ways that people, you know, finding the things that interest people, yeah, and just, you know, kind of focusing your your. Questions into that direction.
1: Nice. Well, focusing questions in a particular direction on this, I, my, you know, really, really cornerstone question of the podcast for folks is always, what drew you to carbon now? And there's any number of things from, oh, well, you know, I've just always grown up here to, oh, well, it was college, but yours is a really, <laughs> I would imagine, interesting story and just what drew you to this place they, again. I, I've already forgotten the words that you used prior to the podcast again, but it was just it was a fortuitous. Was the word? Yeah. <laughs> well, so I mean, I'm
0: from Peoria, so uh-huh. I grew up in. Uh, I'm an Illinoisan. I grew up uh, in Peoria. I went to college in Galesburg, Knox College. My first couple jobs were in Springfield. Uh-huh. Then I traveled overseas and went to Washington. Um, but then, so this must been five, six, seven years ago. I wrote a book on JFK called uh-huh. JFK in the Senate. Um, and as it happens, I forget exactly what the year is, but I was giving a talk at the Edward Kennedy Institute in Boston about mm-hmm. JFK and the Senate to a group of archivists and librarians. Ha- as it turned out, Walter Ray, who works at the Morris Library and, uh, on campus at SIU, was in the audience, mm-hmm. and I was introduced from Peoria, so he came up to me afterwards and said, hey, you know, I'm from Carbondale, work at SIU. So we had a nice chat. Yeah. then that night at the, con- the, the the people from the conference were again, we' in Boston, went out to dinner. My wife Mindy joined us. Mm-hmm. So Walter and Mindy and I walked to the restaurant and were talking and telling Illinois stories and that sort of thing. <laughs> so Walter and I exchanged emails, and uh, you know it went you know, exchanged you know, great to meet you," type of emails. And then sort of out of the blue, must have been six months later, he sent a short note, that said, "The Paul Simon Public Policy Institute is looking for a new director, yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I, you know, I knew <laughs> a bit of the – I had covered Paul Simon mm-hmm. as a reporter. Mm-hmm. I knew of the institute. Um, but, I, but, but I had been a reporter, and I had never really you – know, I had not directed a public policy institute. So my first, you know, first instinct was, you know, very interesting, but you know, I don't think this is quite right. Yeah. So I, I sent that – and then he followed it back, and he said, yeah, I think you really ought to take a look at it. And I said, okay, let me think about it. And then he said, I'm about ready to nominate you. So I said, okay. <laughs> so, so I mean, that was, and, and then, but the one thing that I've learned, and I, t- I tell this to my students is, so once I decided to apply, mm-hmm. you know, you decide either you do it right or you don't. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, if I'm going to apply to this, you know, I need to, to, to I need to, take this seriously yeah and uh so i spent i had just recently read a book on paul simon as it happened so Mm -hmm. i i had a good back good steeping in his uh a good grasp of his his history but spent a fair amount of time on the institute's website was able to to kind of assemble the history the programs Mm -hmm. and i spent i'm sure a good solid i mean a good solid i mean i spent uh, i wrote my cover letter over the course of two or three weeks. Yeah. But it was, I mean, I spent a lot of time on it. I had my wife, Mindy, mm-hmm. who is my best and toughest editor, <laughs> read through it. And, um, and I had some other friends who I, whose judgment I respect. you know. Mm-hmm. And I laid out an agenda. I mean, it was basically laying out an agenda. Yeah. And to, perhaps even to my own surprise, that agenda has largely held since you know, going through the interview process. Yeah. It was a long interview process. Um, and then I arrived. I was, the job was offered in November of 2017, and I started in January of 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I ended up here. I and mean, it was just—I mean, literally—meeting me- ch- someone at a conference yeah. in Boston about a book I would written about JFK, <laughs> and that led to a series of connections that led to to this job. Uh, so
1: almost serendipitous. Yeah, we're, that's we're how I felt. Yeah, one, yeah, but that's serendipitous how, as that, well. That's how I felt. Oh my gosh! Did, so. All right. So that's, that in and of itself is, a, is, is its own kind of I'm interested as well in how you and Mindy met because are you, you both have that news background.
0: Well, we met
1: on the radio. <laughs> how is that for a, a
0: typical romance? <laughs> I was a reporter in D.C. and I worked, um, you know, I was covering Congress. Uh-huh. And I had arranged through some twists and turns to do this weekly segment for a public broadcasting station in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm the largest one in Southern California. Uh-huh. Mindy at the time was living in Los Angeles and she was a producer. Yeah. So she was, and also she was a weekend anchor. Well, twists and turns as it happened. So I, I did, I had my Monday morning special, my, my Monday mornings show. And the guy who usually interviewed me was uh, going to be off. So Mindy was the uh-huh. guest interviewer. <laughs> so we had this wonderful conversation before, you know, I had a nice connection, had a great interview and it was like, okay, you know, we were both single at the time. Yeah. And uh, so we had some, uh, you know, we, that we had mostly kind of a professional relationship for about a year. Then just fortuitously, I was in Los Angeles and um, bumped in, met her at a party.
1: Yeah.
0: And like we, we had talked on the radio, you know, on the radio and we had <laughs> emails, but we never actually had met. Uh-huh. So then that began a year and a half long distance courtship. And then she moved to Washington. Wow. Um, so, yeah, we joked that we met on the radio. So.
1: <laughs> that's different than so many other folks' lives of meeting online these days. That's right, but yeah. Back, we, we went analog in the whole that's thing. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's quite a jump, too. I mean, had, had Mindy, I mean, before coming here, I mean, you obviously, growing up in Peoria, had some context of what a cornfield felt like to drive through, right? <laughs> well, so Mindy,
0: before moving here, she had, she was born in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. She grew up in Philadelphia. Um, she lived in New York City for a decade. Yeah. Um, she lived in LA for 20 years, DC for eight or nine. So um, I mean I think I, I, I don't think this is hyperbolic that probably her block in New York City had as many people as, as Carvendale. So, <laughs> so I mean and frankly that was you know I, 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 as we contemplated this move that was the one yeah. major issue. it's like because she's just she's always been, big city person, very urban, but you know, her view was this is a great opportunity. And, uh, you know, she knows, she knows more people in Carbondale than I do. I mean, she's gotten, (laughs) she's very outgoing. She, uh, she's, (laughs) she's gotten, she's very, she's has developed good friendships at the synagogue here. Uh And, um, and so has become very, um, you know, very acclimated here and knows a lot of people She's a big theater person, so she continues to, uh, you know, struggle now because of COVID, but, you know, there's a a good theater community in St. Louis, Mm -hmm. she's done some there. Uh, She's made some theater contacts in Chicago. Um, she does voiceover work, so she's keeping busy and active, and uh, and she's also she loves antiquing and uh, oh yeah well, and that sort funny. of thing. welcome
1: yeah. to welcome to American Pickers Live. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> right, and so she is she's
0: she's at every estate sale and uh-huh. yard sale, and uh, <laughs> and so we have a very very full garage. I'll let you know. Well, so.
1: it's it's so funny. I've got a my my friend Justin. Zerlinden <laughs> Minnie knows Justin well. <laughs> I remember I, it was it was a story from when you guys first moved to town and it was like you you tried to pick something up that you didn't quite have the right vehicle for and had to like make a run back to and fro well, from she, somewhere. so Minnie
0: made these some fairly major acquisitions <laughs> and she was out of town so I had to go pick it up and I remember it was like a snowy day and uh-huh. it was this it was a it was at a um a house that was kind of back on a lot and uh-huh. there was a lot of traffic and mud and it was it was among the more complex uh <laughs> and there was there was a lot more to pick up than I had realized right. so I had to do multiple trips and it was uh <laughs> and of course as it happened she was out of town yeah. so I was uh I was the um, the unskilled labor for that enterprise. So
1: that's a that's a good uh, that's a good early acclamation to.
0: That's right. That's
1: that's your welcome to Carbondale.
0: <laughs> but again, it, but it, that it also is because you know Justin was just amazingly gracious yeah. and. Uh, kind and I mean he could see all the, you know it was, it was things had kind of were more complicated logistically than I think he anticipated for this particular thing. But yeah. he handled it well. He p- treated people respectfully and kindly, and we mm-hmm. got through it. So that was you know that was sort of an an example of how um, I think just sort of the Carbondale spirit of yeah. uh, let's get this work you know let's make it work let's well, make it. And happen. it's an
1: interesting origin story even on even on that end. I, I first met Justin. Eh, we I would have been college. Because I, I don't know, why do I do this? I'm awful about this. The phone and not being off during the interviews. This is the second oh. time in like the past seven days, John. Shame on me oh. and I apologize. So Justin had a um, had a spot kind of down by Harbaugh's. And it was called Vintage Soul. It was like part coffee shop, part used furniture store. Mm-hmm. And like that is Justin's origin story one day he'll he'll be the he'll be the next whoever that you know runs property in a big way around town or southern illinois or what have you but like origin story is just a little old coffee shop used yeah. furniture place and it's yeah. <laughs> funny how people grow from it wherever is. they come from Huh. <sighs> is that did you always know that kind of the the reporting and the politics was kind of a something you were going to pursue or is this something you kind of stumbled into at a later point?
0: No, I was, as a kid growing up, I was sort of a a political junkie. I remember watching the conventions. Uh, my dad was an engineer from Caterpillar, but was, had a lot of interest in history. So we had a lot of books around the house and, and so I, yeah, history and political science was always my main interest. I went to Knox college, as I mentioned, had some great teachers there. And then actually, um, through fortuity again, I, um, (laughs) I, when I graduated from Knox, the governor's office was just creating the first governor's fellowship program. Mm -hmm. So I applied and I ended up going and I was in the first class and the program is structured. So you rotate through various aspects of Mm -hmm. the governor's office. This was governor Thompson at the time. Mm -hmm. And my first rotation was governor Thompson's legislative office, who, which was run by a, a man who had just stepped down from the Illinois house by the name of Jim Edgar <laughs> and he was governor Thompson's legislative director. Uh-huh. So he was, you know, he was my boss. And then, um, um, the first days so I out to lunch, so we went out to lunch and he had, he had studied history at Eastern Illinois mm-hmm. and I'd studied political science at Knox. So we'd had a really interesting conversation, and I remember that night I told my friends, "This Jim Edgar, he's going places," and they're like, "Okay, (laughs) that's pretty well known." So, um, and then you know, as to to fast forward, um, so you know, uh, you know, I worked with him a little bit, and then I you know, I I left Springfield and went to D.C. and followed his career from Mm -hmm. a distance. But since coming back, um, the institute has connected with him on a couple of big projects, yeah. including a an award, the Simon Edgar Award mm-hmm. on leadership, that we are going to be um, uh, announcing the winner in in a week or so.
1: Oh wow! Yeah,
0: so I've been able to to uh, to work again with him and uh, and uh, have enjoyed that.
1: Is this tied real well into? your overarching goals that you had coming into this really acknowledging what and, and you're the, the the word that that you and the Institute uses so often is statesmanship right right I mean was was that really the underpinning of what you were pursuing when you came in the door here?
0: Yeah I mean that was as I look back on the letter that I wrote that was sort of the theme because I think it, to me statesmanship brings together a lot of pieces. I think it brings together you know leadership and vision. I think it brings together compassion and civility, which was a real hallmark mm-hmm. of Paul Simon. And I think that, that the politics of today um, is in desperate need of this quality of statesmanship. Mm-hmm. And the point that you know Governor Edgar and I make about just this award and statesmanship more generally, it's not perfection. We don't ask mm-hmm. public, we don't expect or... Uh, or demand that public officials be perfect. <laughs> yeah, but you know, to me, kind of a working definition of statesmanship is, you know, when a politician or a or really a person, you know, faces an issue, is the first question they ask themselves what is in the public interest? Yeah. You know, they're human beings. They're of course, they're going to say, what is in my personal interest? What Mm -hmm. is my party's interest? Mm -hmm. But as a first, as a first question, they say, what is in the public interest? And I'll give you an example. One of the the first books I wrote was on Mm -hmm. Senator Richard Luger from Mm -hmm. Indiana, conservative Republican uh, from Indiana. And, um, and, uh, the book was called Statesman, uh, Statesman of the Senate, and I spent a couple years following Senator Lugar around. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I agree with him on every issue, but I really believe that the first question he asked himself on any issue is, what's in the public interest? Yeah. And it led him to do things like challenge Ronald Reagan, his Republican president, on sanctions in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And you know, 20 years later, it led him to work with Barack Obama, Democratic president, mm-hmm. on a, a, an arms deal with, with Russia. I mean, the, his overriding uh, concern is what was in the public interest. And I think that's what I think is so, um, so critical to bring that back to public life. And it's, it, it's a dangerous way to conduct a career. I mm-hmm. mean, it's, there are risks to it you know, you can break from your base, you can anger your, your constituents. Mm-hmm. But, but as a, you know, as we say, much better to have a short career characterized by that than a long career characterized by, you know, putting your finger to the wind and yeah. just trying to figure out what it takes to survive the next election. So, to, so for me, that's a quality that I, um, that I think is really important. And, and, I mean, one of the really fun things that have happened to me this year, I'm teaching, I taught a class at SIU, the honors program Mm -hmm. called Restoring American Statesmanship. Mm -hmm. And just introducing the students to people like um, Eleanor Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln, of course, you know, George Marshall, Dwight Eisenhower, Martin Luther King, and just um, Richard Luger, uh, Lee Hamilton, um, and just showing them that, you know, we've done politics better than we are now, yeah, and that there are, you know, that you know, that, that hopefully we will get back to a better place, but it's going to require kind of returning back to some old values, but they're going to have to be reimagined to be sure. But yeah. I think some of these core values of, of just of of willing to look to the long term rather than just trying to get through, you know, the next election.
1: Well, and it was so so funny, like just talking to John Jackson on on the podcast from the other day, and he was talking about what students have come into some of his classes in, in recent years and and understood right off the bat the difference between understanding you know the the collective freedoms and what that looks like together you know versus individual freedoms which everybody understands as he yeah. said you know real well right off the bat. <laughs> And just the, the, the break from those two things. And so I, I hope some of the students that you've been able to introduce these folks to have kind of gotten more of the we and less of the me in politics. Absolutely. And actually
0: for the, the, one of the final uh, projects was to, for them to write a memo uh-huh. to President Biden. Saying how yeah. what he could do to restore statesmanship in the United States, and there were some terrific uh, memos that were drafted, and I sent them all to the White House. I haven't <laughs> heard back. I'm going to stay with it, but uh, but I think it was just even the exercise for the students to think through about okay, you know, what are the challenges that. Mm-hmm. Pre- President Biden faces. And as it happened, the class began on Inauguration Day 2021. Mm-hmm. That was the first day of the class. <laughs> and that was our assignment to watch uh-huh. you know, his inauguration. And we've had, uh, so it, it was kind of a fitting conclusion of the class for them to send a memo to President Biden. But as to your point, the notion in a lot of these was just this, this need to reestablish a sense of community mm-hmm. and we're in this together rather than, you know, what's in it for me.
1: Did you ever think that you'd be having this kind of influence over people just entering into the arena? Would this have ever crossed your mind before? No, I mean, <laughs> not really.
0: And that's—I mean—that's one of the things that when I thought about this job is that you know, as a reporter, I mean, it's a fun job. You mm-hmm. know, working in the Capitol every day. I mean, it's amazing. I had a desk in the Senate Press Gallery, and you know, you're walking <laughs> down the hall, and here's Barack Obama. Yeah. Or John McCain or Ted Kennedy Mm -hmm. uh and it's like oh my god particularly for a political junkie yeah and I loved every minute of that um but but I also wanted a different challenge and also this is an opportunity to kind of pass on what I've learned and Mm -hmm. what I've seen and and to um to help kind of at least uh you know point people in kind of a, a direction that they might want to consider. And yeah. actually in my class, I mean, my final, my final uh, plea was just read books, read <laughs> biographies, you know, yeah. that's so critical to just staying intellectually alive and curious. And you, you cannot live any life other than your own except by, you know, by literature and, yeah. and reading and biographies. And so um, as I, you know, I, as in my final class, I gave them a list of people they should, should, should you know, some ideas about who they could read about. Too. Are,
1: are, are all five of your books biographies? Um,
0: yeah. I mean, I mean like the, the, my last one was, um, it was on, it's called um, Rising Star, Setting Sun. Mm-hmm. And it's about the transition between Dwight Eisenhower and President Kennedy. So mm-hmm. it focuses on a 10-week period in which, you know, the Eisenhower presidency gave way to the Kennedy one. But it's built very strongly on the foundation of of Kennedy and Eisenhower, who are Mm -hmm. almost like two Shakespearean opposites. You know, the wise old king, you know, fading from view and Uh the the rising dashing Crown prince ready to take the crown mm-hmm. and probably not completely ready for the job and <laughs> probably a little bit too scornful of uh-huh. the of the you know the the, the old king um, but yeah I mean that's I guess that's the thing that, that that interests me a lot is biography and trying to to understand people and to mm-hmm. observe people and as I, as I tell my students I mean this is sort of how you, It's kind of life's instruction manual when you read Mm -hmm. biographies because, you know, we all face many of the same challenges in terms of personal life and careers and so forth. And, you know, we all come to forks in the road and to just see how other people Mm -hmm. even thought about which 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 path to take is really instructive, I think.
1: Is there... There, there's, and I'm, I'm, at, I'm at a fork in the road now. I <laughs> like looking at this, going, okay, there's, there's multiple different ways, that I'm really interested in, in carrying this. Um, one of them being the, uh, the, the, the story like, and when I say story, I'm looking more in kind of this, this fictional kind of fantasy or, or, or like you said, traditional. Uh, you know, in, 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 in a Shakespearean play sort of manner that you look at these stories of, of individuals and see them uh, as if they are a, a stage play happening in front of you. Only difference is these are very real characters with, uh, you know, that, are, that are played out in a much different way than those that are on stage, that the actors there can take their makeup off, shed their clothes, and it's something different. But here you're living it day to day.
0: Well, you know, we had one of our uh, most recent Zoom events was with this amazing writer, a woman by the name of Candace Millard, uh-huh. who's written, um, I think you might even call them sort of action biographies. I mean, her first book was about Teddy Roosevelt as a former president taking this trip down an uncharted tributary of the Amazon mm-hmm. and almost died and was in this uh, this expedition where there was... You know, near cannibalism and um, you know illness and death and everything. Um, and she's written another book on James Garfield, and and um, you know this an amazing person he was that was you know tragically you know killed just before, uh, shortly after he became president. Mm-hmm. But her, her her most recent book was and to the point of kind of life's drama was um, about Winston Churchill, but picks him up at as 24. He um, is trying to find his way in the world. Mm-hmm. He goes to the Bo- South Africa to the Boer War to cover the Boer War as a war correspondent. Mm-hmm. Is captured, is a POW, then escapes and has this amazing, you know, two, two or three hundred mile trip across, uh, you know, the the Boer part of South Africa trying mm-hmm. to to escape. So. So, but again, one of the things Candace said was just that the the character is revealed, you know, not in the abstract, but when people face, you know, challenges Mm -hmm. and some of it is really dramatic, like being captured, (laughs) but some of it is smaller, you know, know, personal, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt losing his wife and mother on the same day. And, um, and, and other challenges. So that's one of the things I think stories in general is it just helps us understand, you know, how people confronted difficulty and challenge and just how they thought through the options they faced Mm -hmm. and, and then how they chose options and, and what worked out and what didn't, you know,
1: did that, does that mindset of viewing people as still people having to make, the everyday decisions, whether you're commander in chief or you know regular Joe at the office, that that person still has to maintain their personal lives, their professional lives in a particular manner. These smaller components—is that is that is understanding that something that helped you navigate all of the years on the Hill, doing the reporting and being around these major figures like that?
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think it's interesting, because even as you you saw people up close, I mean, it was so striking how, um, I mean, you do get, being up on the hill for, you know, 25 years, I mean, you do get a sense of just kind of the human being behind the image. And one thing that I found striking, and maybe even a little surprising, is some of the people who I agreed with the least were oftentimes the nicest and kindest people, Yeah, and others who are sort of iconic figures were, were not particularly, um, you know, <laughs> nice. And I mean, not to, to, to uh, I mean, one, one who just kind of quickly comes to mind, I don't mean to be
1: unkind, but oh, please spill the tea, John. Well, no, like, <laughs> no I'm thinking of, of John Edwards, the uh-huh. former,
0: you know, Senator and vice mm-hmm. presidential candidate. And he was, you know, he came on the Hill and within, you know, months he was considered this rising star. And, uh, you know, he ran for the president in 2004. And um, you know, almost got it. Became v, you know VP nominee for John Kerry. But I remember him. You know, he was like this rising star. Whenever you would pass him in the hall, he would always look past you. Mm-hmm. You know. And then there was another. I remember like a, a Connie Mack, a very very conservative Republican from from Florida. Um, you know, you'd pass him in the hall, and he would sort of walk in on you. How you doing? And particularly, you know, you'd seen you yeah. around for a while. What's going on? You know, what do you got going on this weekend? I mean, it was just. Kind of a humanity, you yeah. know, and uh, so that's, I guess, was the, the kind of interesting thing is to see some see these political figures up close and now that they became, you know, super close friends, because as a reporter, you, you wouldn't want that. Yeah. But you do see people, you know, up close and you get to see, I get to appreciate that they, you know, they face the same decisions we do mm-hmm. in day-to-day life.
1: Yeah. And that just helps to bring... People more into frame like oh hey well what what is a motivator for you oh well turns out it's very similar the motivator that is for me right you know what is what do i do for my children how do i have you know a place to sleep at night and and live and exist and albeit probably uh, some of these carnal carnal needs are a little bit better met uh in a when you're in a better financial situation Uh right that there's still some core components to it so no that's that's something to be to be appreciated, right? And we I, I would say from normal people's perspective, people probably think about this all the time. Well, well, are they really just like us? Are these people that make these decisions? Or or you know, are, or you know, even anything from from politicians to, you know, movie stars to just people that are generally well known public figures, right? We always question, well, are these people the same as me? And it feels like the answer is very Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think
0: yes. I mean, I do think that they have, you know, they get tired and they have kids (laughs) and complicated lives and so forth. I mean, the one thing that I have seen about political figures at, you know, if I could put it this way, at kind of the higher levels, there does tend to be a kind of Mm self-focus and maybe even a self-absorption that... (laughs) It's necessary. I mean, yeah. you need to got you need to want it bad, and mm-hmm. you need to be willing to be, at times to be really single minded and one dimensional, and and maybe put other things aside. So, so I think you know. On the one hand, all these political figures are like us in yeah. terms of having you know competing, you know, not enough time, too many demands on our time, and just you know being scattered and busy and so forth. But I, I have found that is. You know, oftentimes as people have risen up the political ladder, I mean, it does require a, a, a kind of a self-focus that um, is not probably the most attractive human quality. You
1: know? <laughs> I'd say that's probably a reasonable, uh, a reasonable assumption as well. Like, uh, you have to be really self-absorbed if you want to want to, I mean, to spend five or seat.
0: six hours a day fundraising, oh, which yeah. a lot of lawmakers have to do. I mean, not that they like it. Yeah. But, um, you know, you have to think that, you know, that people should, you know, part with their money to support your political ambitions. So there it does require a little bit of, uh, you know, sort of self, uh, self-regard self to, to make that pitch.
1: Is there anything that you've seen on the back end that people would be just ever so surprised at? Uh, like just in, in, the, in the political arena in Washington or at a state level or, or any sort of, you know, political institution that we're, that we're all very aware of?
0: You know, I, I guess the only thing I th- say is sometimes you just kind of see just the humanity of people that mm-hmm. even when they are, you know, kind of exalted people, when you see them, you know, walking down. Well, let me, let me give you one image that stays with me. This is in 2008, and I was, um, it was the, the um, early in the presidential year. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joe Biden had just been knocked out of the presidential race. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd finished like fifth or sixth in Iowa. And, um, and uh, so I remember this was, I and mean, he had just announced that he was leaving the race. This was maybe like February. And I remember it was just this awful, bleak, gray day in DC. I, and I would take the train from my home to Union Station. Mm-hmm. So I was in Union Station, um, and it was early in the morning, and i look across, and there was this big hall, and I see one person alone walking down this hall towards mm-hmm. the Capitol. And he had a trench coat on, and he was huddled and head down, and it just it looked like the picture of defeat. Uh-huh. And I looked more closely, and it was Joe Biden. This was two thousand eight, and he yeah. probably thought his political career. I mean, he's you know he was still the you know a senior member of the Senate. Mm-hmm. He was you know from uh, on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but you know what he thought was the dream of a lifetime had been dashed, mm-hmm. and here he was. And you see him, and I remember just thinking, "Oh my God, I just feel so bad for the guy." I mean, and you just started thinking more broadly. I mean, what happens when the thing you want most in the world Blows up, yeah, and it's not going to happen. I mean, how do you regroup? And it's not like, you know, in, in Biden's case, he'd lost, you know, children and a mm-hmm. wife in a car accident, so he'd endured far worse than that. Mm-hmm. But that was that was a, that a memory that stuck with me, and I do think that there is um, um, a kind of enduring moment of that could I just uh, segue yeah. to Ashley another Please. Joe yeah another Joe Biden this is my favorite Joe Biden story <laughs> so I was writing this book on Senator Gugger.
1: uh-huh
0: and um um, Luger and Biden sat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee mm-hmm. for 30 years together. And so Senator Luger was this wonderful man. He was not very, I mean, he, he's like a lot of Midwestern men of his generation where he really couldn't brag on himself mm-hmm. and he couldn't really talk very much about himself. So, you know, I tried to, you know, I tried, you know, lots of different ways to get him to talk. And, and I mean, he he was cooperative as he could be, but but it was clear that I needed to talk to other people. So, You know, and I talked to, you know, Senator Hagel and, you know, Senator Lugar's wife and staffers and all. But I thought it'd be really helpful to have an interview with Joe Biden, who was Mm -hmm. then the vice president. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to the vice president's office and I said, you know, any chance I could get an interview with with Vice President Biden about Senator Lugar? And they checked I mean they clearly checked with the Luger people to see if I was a legitimate reporter or what was going on. But word came down that okay, yeah, Shaw's working on this book and we trust him and he's he's gonna do a fair job. Mm -hmm. So the Biden people came back to me and they said, Well, you can either do a phone interview in two weeks for fifteen minutes or wait like six weeks and do a in in in-person interview. Mm -hmm. And I had had enough interaction with then Senator Biden that I knew that it was (laughs) much, much better to do it in person. Uh And so I said, okay, I'll wait six weeks. And again, I mean, there was not, it was not without risk because I thought there was a chance that could get postponed or delayed or or just canceled. So in any case, I, uh, I go to the interview and, um, And um, it was funny because, you know, my name was on the the roster Mm -hmm. and uh, Biden, you know, uh, the name didn't mean anything but when I came in he recognized me for my years on the hill and he's uh-huh. like
1: hey how you doing
0: man and he gives me this bro hug <laughs> so this is this 2011 I think it is and so he's vice president of the United States you know i go going to his office so he's like hey let me show you around the office and he's you know showing me well this is my private study and this is the, you know, this yeah. is where I do my work and now I should add I had been told by his press person 15 minutes and you're out yeah I will throw you out is what she said <laughs> So um, so so you know. Then you know I'm, I'm sitting down, and uh, Biden said, um, "So we're just settling in." She goes, he, "And I, the interview was like at one o'clock." He said, "What'd you have for lunch today?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I couldn't right thing. He said, "Hang on a second. Like, so he reaches in his drawer and he throws me a candy bar, like a Snickers <laughs> bar. Mindy later said, "Well, what'd you do with it?" And I said, "I ate it." Yeah, yeah what else are you gonna put do? put in my scrapbook or something? You know? <laughs> So he throws me this candy bar, you know, the vice president of the United States tossing me this candy bar, which I catch. And then uh, we're sitting down. And he says, w- 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 here, let me get you something. So he, he grabs me this, you know, bottle of water and he tosses it to me and I catch it. So then I say, OK, you know, and, and I had a very carefully yeah. thought out interview because I knew that Biden could go on. And yeah. I needed I needed three or four core questions. So I, uh, you know, I asked him uh, you know, a couple of questions and he was going on and on. I'm like, oh my God. And then I, I said, um, you know, Mr. Vice President, I know we need to kind of bring this to an end. He said, oh no, I'm just getting started. And his press person slumped in her chair. And it's like Joe Biden going to the races. And he was very, and and he had prepared notes on this. So he was really prepared. And, but the funny thing too, that I remember at a couple points, he would just, I had a tape recorder and he would, I'd ask him a question and he'd pause. He said, hang on a second. He'd reach across and he turned off the tape recorder. So one time in particular, I said, well, tell me about Senator Luger's relationship with Mitch McConnell. (laughs) And he looks at me, and he reaches across, and he turns off the tape recorder. He says, Mitch McConnell. And he goes to town on <laughs> Mitch McConnell. And then, you know, seven or eight minutes later, and I, can, I don't feel at liberty to say what he said, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, he turns it back on. He said, Senator McConnell can be a difficult senator to work with. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so he, he, he continues to go forward. And then finally, I mean, we are well past the hour point. And... I can hear, you know, some commotion in the outer office and about six people walk in and they say, uh, Mr. Vice President, President Obama, um, is scheduled to meet with you in one minute. And he said, I'm almost done. I'll be there. You know? <laughs> so, um, and then he, I think he was just a way of showing that, you know, he was, you know, he was not going to just, you know, that he had his own schedule. That he yeah. was gonna finish. So, but, but I mean, the bottom line too, was that he, had, he gave he gave me some really perceptive, thoughtful, yeah. um, assessments of Luger, which were very positive, but also some criticisms that were respectful, but also, um, you know, kind of pointed to some parts of Luger's uh, record that Biden thought, you know, were worth considering. So
1: The story of how you get to the story is in and of itself <laughs> a great story. <laughs> and it's so like you're, you're sitting here and you're, and you're talking about Joe Biden and, and the connection to Barack Obama. And the things that are firing off in the back of my head are everybody in Illinois has a Barack Obama story yeah right if you're if you've been around in politics at some point in time since you know 2000 give or take you got a Barack Obama story out there and just how really small this world can, well, can be. I tell you my favorite yeah, absolutely well this is no John you can't tell me any okay. great stories this no. is
0: actually not my story but a good <laughs> friend of mine who um, was um, worked for George Ryan uh-huh. governor- and so he was, working, he was working for George Ryan, who was then the governor, and he was working with Barack Obama, who was then the chair of the Joint Committee on Administrative Rules, this mm-hmm. really, really arcane technical realm. Mm-hmm. So my buddy, his name is Eric, um, had been dealing with State Senator Obama for months, assembling this intricate package mm-hmm. of rules, rule adjustments. They had reached an agreement, and my friend had to go back to Governor Ryan and make sure that he would sign off on it. Mm -hmm. And he'd been, you know, briefing them all along, and Ryan said, yeah, 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 let's go. (laughs) At the last minute, someone got to Ryan and said, stop this package. Yeah. So my buddy then had to go to Barack Obama, State Senator Obama, and say Uh the months and months of arcane, difficult work Mm -hmm. they had done were for naught. Yeah. So he says he'll never I mean he kind of gathered himself and he goes into his office and and Obama says, "So Eric, are we ready to go?" And he said, Senator, I have some bad news. Um, the governor has decided to go in a different direction." And he said, Obama looked at him for what seemed a lifetime, just looked him right in the eye and said, "Really?" And Eric I mean, Eric, you know he didn't couldn't throw Ryan under the bus, but yeah. he just you know, he, he said, yes, you know, the governor's decided to go in another direction. So Obama just took a deep breath and said, OK. And um, and then Eric walks out. Um, three years pass. <laughs> Eric is now a staffer in D.C. Uh-huh. Barack Obama is this phenom senator and there is a hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and Eric just happens to go in the room and he sees Obama off on the side you know uh-huh. doing, there's a, there's been a break in the action so uh, he sees Obama you know this is like one of the few times he didn't have an entourage or staffers mm-hmm. so he walks up to him and he says Senator Obama I want to just re- reintroduce myself my name is you know Eric and you know I used to work for Governor Ryan and you know we worked together on some things and he said <laughs> Obama looked at him and he said Eric when you came in there and told me that governor Ryan was killing our administrative reform package, I could have killed you. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, but he, he does this. And yeah. apparently there's a photograph of him doing this. Uh-huh. And he said, he goes, but then he, then he this big, so he says, but I realized you were just the bearer of bad news. Yeah. I wasn't going to take it out on you. But he said, all of a sudden, when you came up and told me that I could see, you know, dozens and dozens of hours of my life you know thrown out the window but yeah. but to me that shows a lot of things one of them is just how even you know barack obama yeah. remembers his time as a state senator in illinois <laughs> um, but also just the self-control because yeah. i mean many many people in that realm would have taken eric's head off yeah and 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 harbored a grudge against him but he had sort of the emotional discipline to say okay this guy's just bringing me bad news, yeah. and I got to separate the news from the person who's delivering it. So,
1: <laughs> well, and it takes you know that the other thing that we get too mixed up in, I feel like as a uh, you know as a society uh, in this country is that you know we look at politics as just the figureheads that exist on television, in the halls, the representatives, the senators, the people that you know simply are the elected function, and we don't look at you know, the iceberg theory of, oh, there's just a little bit of iceberg on top, but there's so much more underneath it. I'm not using that as a segue to politics at all. I'm using that as a segue to Forefront because you were talking about how, you know, the work that you do with Forefront is able to be, uh, you know, valuable because there are so many people within the Forefront organization to help you achieve um, what, uh, what that organization is, is looking to do. Tying that back around to a story feeding into what I hope will be some other uh, podcasts here in the near future with the Community Foundation, some of their Southern Illinois leadership stuff. But when Byram and I went up to meet with, gosh, I can't even remember his name now. I Eric, wrote him Eric Weiner. Eric yeah. Weiner. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and meeting with, with Eric and walking in and saying, oh, well, you guys are from Southern Illinois. Do you know John Sean? It was just... <laughs> There it was. <laughs> well, I might say what
0: forefront is, because forefront is this group that um, based in Chicago, but it's an Illinois statewide organization mm-hmm. that brings together the uh, philanthropic community, the nonprofit community, mm-hmm. and so it's this uh, this really important and creative organization. And I- I'm sitting on I'm on their board of directors, yeah. and so I've you know, and for me, actually, one of the reasons I accepted it is. You know, the institute we you know we have a strong financial base, but you know, I, I, you know we're constantly trying to expand our contacts mm-hmm. and to continue to raise resources so we can you know do our work. Yeah. And so you know, one of the things I, as as my job as director is to kind of understand better this philanthropic sector in Illinois. And try to figure out what programs we have mm-hmm. might align with them. And you know, we talked about statesmanship, and I'd like you know, I'm looking for some groups that uh, um, might want to help fund some statesmanship initiatives. You know, because I think mm-hmm. a lot of groups are really, <coughs> really concerned about this just the state of our democracy, mm-hmm. and um, and want to fund initiatives that help promote. Good government, leadership, citizenship—that sort of thing. So that was a segue that yeah. that we no, you might got it, make man. To, to forefront. Na- yeah.
1: Nail on the head. I mean, and that's that's cool just to be able to even to come along all in the same frame that the interests for you personally, for you professionally, for the organization, institution that you represent, but also. Getting that out into the the broader ether of these massive networks of institutions and individuals that you know the the moment has kind of met you where you are. Luckily enough in this space. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot
0: of the things that I have learned um, are helpful, and one of the things that I find really um, you know Leon Panetta, we had a a a, a, a um, a Zoom event with Leon Panetta, who has been everything, the White House mm-hmm. Chief of Staff and the uh, Secretary of Defense, the head of the CIA, the budget director. And, uh, and I, in the interview, I was just sort of, and he was considered a pretty good Secretary of Defense, even though he had no particular background in defense issues. Mm-hmm. And and one of the kind of questions I was asking him is, like, how do you do it? How did you do it? Because, you know, the Pentagon has just so overwhelmed people. And he he smiled. He said, I have a pretty good BS detector. (laughs) And so, but but then he went on to say just some of the intuitive, I mean, just many of the things from his past that he could bring to bear as he tries to figure out how to lead the Pentagon and I think that you know, in a very different context, for me, you know, the various things I've learned about, um, you know, watching politicians, watching political leaders, mm-hmm. um, following politics, reading books, studying history, um, you know, there's just there's just a lot of things you can learn that that you can bring to bear. I mean, one actually, I gave this example to my students is that. Um, um, I was just talking about how like, studying history can kind of inform our day-to-day decisions. And I gave him this example, which is during the, the, the and this is going to sound a little off the wall, but I think I can bring it home. Um, <laughs> during the, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh-huh. JFK had, got, at a very difficult point in the negotiation, had gotten um, two contradictory messages from Khrushchev. The first one was very hostile and harsh. The second one was far more conciliatory. Mm-hmm and so he faced he got these two different messages and he's like you know what to do and kennedy kind of instinctively said i'm going to seize on the positive one I'm going to kind of forget I didn't get the negative one. And Uh I'm going to seize on the positive one and then use that as the basis of my next response to to Khrushchev. And as I said to my students, I said, you know, this happens to us a lot in life, that you get lots of contradictory signals. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's good to bring the contradictions to bear and to get them clarified. But there are times when there's enough ambiguity that it makes sense to seize on... The most constructive one or the mm-hmm. most helpful one and bring that to the to the table rather than the negative one so yeah. and that's just something that I, I and i i found you know a couple times in just in the last year or two where i've you know i've received you know emails or or, or phone calls or or you know approaches from people where i i've but you know i've received contradictory messages and i could you know, I decided to choose which one I wanted to seize upon, <laughs> uh-huh. and, and, it, and I'm not saying it works all the time, but it is just a kind of a technique that helps you um, kind of navigate the world. I find.
1: Well, you took you took that Midwestern nice out to <laughs> <laughs> the East Coast, and and uh, you know the the uh, I almost I almost referred to. Washington, D.C. In a, in a way that I thought, oh, well, oh this is just the, the geographical nature of it. And I was like, no, that's not the phrasing to use uh, in describing D.C. because of the, the negative connotation of that anymore these days. Um, but, you know, it's just to see you take that as, you know, the, the, the kid from Peoria, take it out to D.C. and then kind of bring it back kind of in the same realm with, with a little maturation to the, to the ideals there. Yeah. yeah.
0: can I just say one thing about Washington, too? Yeah. That, you know, I mean, there is, you know, there is official Washington and yeah. everyone, you know, has views on that. But I have to say there is kind of day to day Washington. And my mm-hmm. wife and I, you know, had a house, you know, a mile from the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Literally, you know, look the right way. in the winter, when the leaves are down, we can see the Capitol from our almost from our front uh, front uh, door. Um and, and, you know, so we're like, you know, literally in the kind of the, you know, within a close proximity of the capital, And, you know, the people who lived next to us, you know, were, some were political, but a lot mm-hmm. weren't. And, you know, they, you know, we, everyone sat out on their porch at nights and, you know, we, we decorated our house on mm-hmm. Halloween's and sat out there and gave kids, you know, food, you know, trick or treats to the kids. So, so I mean, in day to day life, I mean, the Washington is a really good city. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, it's livable, great culture, great theater, great art, um, interesting people. So it's, um, you know, it, I think people here, you know, when they when they say, "Did you like Washington?" I'm like, you know, I did, and I think they're like, you know, how could that be? But most of the city is not yeah. what the image is. Well, there's, you know?
1: what you, there's what you're known for, and there's what you really are. Yeah. And those are two very different that's right. things, no matter where you go in this country, in this world. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's pretty reasonable. Hey, we should know that. We are just over that hour mark, John. Is it's been Is there, is there, is there re- anything that I'm missing here or that, that you, like, touch on before we go? I don't usually ask that question. But we've just, there's there's so many different stuff, that things that we've kind of touched on throughout this conversation. I wouldn't want to leave it. On, on her clo- or You know, open. I might just
0: end by saying that, you know, one of the things that I have learned is how important, and this is going to sound like a commercial, but how important the Institute is to the community yeah. here. And I know Paul Simon had made a choice when he located the Institute in Carbondale. And so, I mean, we face a, a complex challenge. I mean, we want to have a global reach. Uh, we want to have a national reach. We want to have a statewide reach. But we're also really aware that, you know, that it was created in Carbondale mm-hmm. and that, you know, part of our contributions uh, is, you know, is to this community. And one of the things that we're trying to work through as we, you know, figure out what's next with us is, you know, we, we've done a lot on Zoom and it's given us access to people around the world mm-hmm. and, you know, a, a, you know, across the United States and we like that, but we're also eager when, you know, when, when COVID allows and public safety allows to start having events. And I know you were, you know, yeah. you know, look out in the audience and yeah. I'd always see you there and ask great questions yeah. and we're very attentive and all. So, so we want this to continue to be a really important resource yeah. for Carbondale and we're eager to start doing stuff in person again so people can start coming to our events and meeting our speakers yeah. and, and enjoying our, our programs. Well,
1: and you, you talked about Chris Welsh. I think that's such a great example of the value that the Institute brings locally Right, in terms of putting eyes on and opening ears to Carbondale, but the region as a whole, right? When Forefront brought you on to their board, it was part of them looking to reach into Southern Illinois. You know, I, I, I say that just by, by virtue of the conversation that, was, that we had with Eric, was him saying, you know, we, we really need to reach into, we really need to, we say we're, we're full service. You know, organization for the entirety of the state, we need to increase what we do and how we interact yeah. with Southern Illinois. And so he found a way to make a base of operations or, or a base of connection out of the community foundation to reach into the overall you know Southern Illinois region as well as, as working through you. Same concept in bringing somebody like a Chris Welch here and saying, eyes on, ears open. Care about this place because there are people that care about you just the same. They're here in the room with you wanting to ask you questions. Please take that into consideration. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so we, um, you know, and it's, it's interesting. We, you know, we had a, an event a couple of years ago with David Kennedy. I mentioned that, mm-hmm. you know, he is this, you know, world famous historian, you know, based in Stanford, this amazing campus. And he came here and we had one of our great students give him a tour of the campus. and. And, and he was like, this is an amazingly beautiful place. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was just kind of blown away. I mean, we, he came in the fall and-
1: Oh, just the right time. And there my wife <laughs> and I drove,
0: you know, as a kid he had spent, or uh, on his way to graduate school, he had had a girlfriend who was in DeCoin. Uh-huh. so he'd spent some time in DeCoin. <laughs> so Mindy and I took him out to DeCoin. Uh-huh. and we took him out to a place where he had had dinner with her. And then we, we kind of stormed our way on the fairgrounds, and because they apparently like one of those two big houses uh-huh. she had lived in there, so we were able. Oh, to kind she of was. Walk- a,
1: he was. He was connected to a uh, Reddenauer somehow. That's right. That was like. yeah. That was it. So,
0: <laughs> but it was so it was interesting because then he, we took some pictures and all. But still, it was just it was striking that. You know, here this world-famous historian yeah. from you know the, the Silicon Valley came to SIU and Carbondale and just was really taken by its beauty and charm. So, man,
1: well, that is where I hope you all are taken by the charm of this conversation for the 79th episode of the WTF Carbondale podcast. I've tripped through a little bit on the front end, but I think we closed out real strong, but that's all because of John and just being you know, the, the consummate professional conversationalist that he is. Um, have a good one, folks. Whatever that one may be. <laughs>